Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. On this episode of One Friend of Vaults, we'll be taking a look at one of my favorite mysteries from 20th century trans history. Our subject today somehow managed the tricky feat of being a celebrated musician without anyone clocking his tea. This story leaves me with more questions than answers, but thankfully comes with the best soundtrack we've had yet on OFTV. There are a few people I'd like to credit with the creation of this episode. First, Anson for tipping me off to this slice of trans history. Next, my dear friend Gaines Parker, who brought me the juiciest bits of gossip to flavor this episode. And most importantly, the great Monica Roberts, whose years of effort preserving and promoting African-American trans history through her blog, Trans Grio, have been a huge inspiration to me and countless others. As a community, we are pretty blessed to have Monica, and you should all go check out her blog, which you can find linked in the show notes. Other sources, such as Ubuntu and the Untitled Black Lesbian Elder Project, can also be found in the show notes. So... Join us as we try to piece together the successful life, bizarre death, and continuing afterlife of gospel singer Wilmer Littleaxe Broadnax. December 28, 1916, in Houston, Texas. According to the Ubuntu Biography Project, which presents biographies of LGBT women and men of African descent, Wilmer's parents were Augustus Flowers, born in Louisiana, and Gussie Flowers, whose maiden name was Broadnax, according to their 1927 marriage certificate uncovered by the untitled Black Lesbian Elder Project. Ubuntu also reports that the 1930 census names a younger brother, William C. Broadnax, and a younger sister, Armatha Broadnax. That same year, his mother died of tuberculosis when Wilmer would have been 14 years old. But wait, does this mean Wilmer transitioned before the age of 14? Before the 1930 census? Maybe, but this seems a little unlikely to me, and I'm not the only one. The Untitled Black Lesbian Elder Project gives some really interesting thought to this. They write, quote, Sadly, 
There are no other records of Armatha's existence. No birth certificate, no death certificate, no social security number, no marriage or divorce records, no other census information. The stories in books and online say that Wilmer Broadnax took on his older brother's identity when he started singing. Some sources say that William was Wilmer's older brother. William was certainly Armatha's older brother. I believe Wilmer Brodnax was born Armatha Brodnax. If so, what happened to the original Wilmer Brodnax? Perhaps he died young and Armatha took over his name? A quick aside here. Further complicating Wilmer's choice of name is that several spellings have been used by various sources. Wilmer, Wilmer with a U, Wilbur, and Willie. Yeah, sounds pretty trans to me, too. But also, some of these spellings are used for his older brother, William, such as Wilbur. Not much else is known about Wilmer's early life after this. Much like the man on the cross, to whom so many of Wilmer's gospel songs were dedicated, there's a large gap missing between here and when he reappears as an adult in the mid-1940s. But we have to guess that at some point before his arrival in Los Angeles with brother William, Wilmer transitioned and began living as a man. Careful listeners of our previous episodes on this period, such as the episode on trans men Michael Dillon and Reed Erickson, will remember that testosterone wasn't available before 1937 and wasn't used on transsexuals until the 1940s. And even then, this was not in wide use until really the 1960s. Based on the recordings you'll hear throughout this episode, we can probably safely assume that hormones were not part of Wilmer's transition. His voice remained a high tenor throughout his career. In fact, as I'll discuss in a moment, it's what made his career. Take this recording, for example, which he did with the famed Spirit of Memphis Quartet. On Calvary! 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 Jesus on blood and On Calvary! On Calvary! On Calvary! Oh, you know they were God of the about Wilmer's life in the early 1940s is that he and his brother William sang in Houston's St. Paul Gospel Singers. He was known for being short and wearing glasses and possessing a beautiful high tenor as we just discussed. This shortness earned him the nickname Little Axe, distinguishing him from his taller, similarly named brother who came to be known affectionately as Big Axe. 
I'm going to stop here and be straight up that I am no expert on gospel music. While I love some Mahalia Jackson like anyone else who has ever heard her, the intricacies of gospel as a genre are lost on this white girl from Canada. Thankfully, these are not lost on everyone. In researching this episode, I found a great piece by Noah Berlatsky over at Hooded Utilitarian that breaks it down for adults like me. He writes, quote, As gospel scholar Anthony Halebutt has pointed out, gospel is actually two genres, gospel and quartet. Gospel singing, which featured a soloist or chorus with piano or organ backing, certainly had male stars, like Alex Bradford. But the biggest names were women like Clara Ward, Marion Williams, and Mahalia Jackson. Quartet singing, featuring a cappella harmony performances, had some female stars, most notably at the tail end of the genre's existence, Mavis Staples, but was mostly performed by men. The division might suggest a conservative, Christian, gendered division, men and women, separate but equal, inhabiting different spheres. In fact, though, the interaction of gender and genre in gospel is a bit more complicated. Gospel quartet was overwhelmingly male, but men, quartet or gospel, often demonstrated virtuosity by singing high tenor. Thus, Wilmer's high voice gave him a definite virtuosic edge on the competition. And with that edge, together, Little Axe and Big Axe set their sights higher than just the local gospel choir. They set out for Los Angeles, which most sources state was sometime in the mid-1940s. Though the more factually reliable, untitled Black Lesbian Elders Project puts them in L.A. in 1939. There, they joined the Southern Gospel Singers, a group that performed shows on weekends. All of the members held down day jobs, making touring impossible. Within a year or two, the Brodnax brothers left the Southern Gospel Singers and struck out on their own, founding the Golden Echoes. The Golden Echoes toured extensively throughout the 1940s, earning a solid reputation on the gospel scene. Let's take a listen to one of their recordings. Is there any and watching for you, watching for you. Is there any part of waiting, watching for you? Critic Ray Funk wrote of the Golden Echoes, Little Axe's lead is absolutely distinctive on these cuts. He is the high lead that takes over from the baritone of Paul Foster. His voice is sweet but almost vicious, dripping with emotion, while Foster, in contrast, would offer almost a growl. Anthony Halebutt wrote, I admired Bronax's records largely because there was something non-quartet about his delivery. 
It was impassioned in a way that I associated with women singers of his generation. The group did well through the 1940s. Near the end of the decade, Big Axe left the group and moved to Atlanta, where he joined the Five Trumpets. Jason Ankeny writes, At the time of the group's one and only specialty session, recorded in Hollywood on April 5th, 1949, their roster included co-leads Wilmer Brodnax and Paul Foster, tenor Eldridge Bostick, baritone Jimmy Copeland, and bass James Ricks a longtime veteran of the gospel circuit whose career included tenures with the Birmingham Jubilees, the famous Blue Jays, and the Flying Clouds of Detroit. The session yielded the Golden Echoes' lone specialty single, When the Saints Go Marching In. For reasons unknown, label chief Art Roop dropped the group soon after, and despite a growing reputation on the live circuit, they disbanded a few months later. Why would a band gaining in popularity suddenly be dropped from their record label after recording their first single? I haven't been able to find the answer to this scintillating question, but my overactive imagination would like to believe perhaps there were dramatic reasons behind it. Perhaps the label clocked Wilmer's tea and dropped him to avoid the scandal. This would certainly hold true for why the band broke up shortly thereafter. But this is pure speculation based on absolutely nothing. We might never know what caused the end of the Golden Echoes, but by the finish of 1949, Little Axe would be searching for a new way to keep singing the Lord's song. First stop, the spirit of Memphis. The spirit, as they were known, had started in the 1930s and by the 1950s had become one of the biggest gospel groups in America. The group included the legendary Silas Steele. The Blues Encyclopedia notes that they were one of the leading professional groups of the 1950s and are still a notable presence in the early 20th century. Ubuntu Biography Project notes that the Spirit of Memphis was one of the highest paid gospel groups of their time, earning as much as $200 a week. Wilmer and Little Axe Broadnax joined the quartet in 1950 and toured with them until 1952. Most of the photographs you can find of Wilmer online are from this period, and it appears to be Wilmer's greatest brush with stardom. They recorded many songs with Little Axe, and you can find a lot of them on YouTube. Ubuntu notes that part of Broadnax's appeal was that audiences read him as a man who was, quote, androgynously giving a credible imitation of a powerful woman's voice with great skill and ease. Let's listen. Well, make more room, make room, make room, make room, just make more room for Jesus in your life. Yes, if you want your sins forgiven and get a foretaste of heaven, just make more room for Jesus in your life. Girl, up in this world of sin. 
You have no hopes within it. Just make more room for Jesus in your life. Well, you'll make your burden lighter and all your deeds much brighter. Just make more room for Jesus in your life. Well, just make more room, make room, more room, make room. Just make more room for Jesus in your life. Yes, if you want your sins forgiven And get a little taste of heaven Just make more room for Jesus in your life joined Nashville's Fairfield Four in 1952. This didn't last long, and soon he moved on to the Five Blind Boys of Mississippi, not to be confused with the Blind Boys of Alabama. The Five Blind Boys of Mississippi had been one of the first quartets to break through onto the secular R&B charts with 1951's Our Father, which reached number 10 on the Billboard R&B. Led by Archie Brownlee, the band was originally a group of students at Piney Wood School near Jackson, Mississippi. Piney Wood School is one of the last remaining African-American boarding schools. Originally comprised of all-blind singers, the group had been organized by their teacher, Martha Louise Morrow Fox, who is also remembered for fighting towards integration that eventually led to the founding of the Integrated Mississippi School for the Blind. Little Axe found respect within the Five Blind Boys of Mississippi, joining them as their second lead around 1960. Here's a recording he did with them. <laughs> Yes, I have. 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 Y
five blind boys, Little Axe also founded his own group, Little Axe and the Golden Voices, or Little Axe and the Golden Echoes, depending on your sources, which toured from 1960 to 1965. But the golden age of gospel was coming to a close. Quartet was on its way out, and by 1965, Wilmer retired from touring. He would continue to record occasionally with the Five Blind Boys of Mississippi throughout the 1970s and 1980s, but mostly dropped off the map. That is, until we get to the strangest, saddest, and most gossipy part of his story. When I told my friend Gaines late one night that I intended to cover Little Axe, he helpfully pointed me to a February 5th, 1993 article on Wilmer's death. The headline reads, Girlfriend Guilty and Stabbing. Here it is in its full, salacious, and inappropriately hilarious glory. The judge had the perfect solution for a woman who killed the man she said had been tormenting her for several years. Stay away from men. I think she is a good woman, common pleas judge Lisa Richette said of Lavina Richardson, 42, who stabbed 72-year-old Wilmer Brodnax to death last May 23rd. I don't think she is vicious. I think he, Brodnax, drove her crazy, Richette said. The judge suggested that Richardson stay away from older men. Stay away from men, period. I think you are a perfect candidate for victimization. Richette found Richardson of the Tasker Homes Project in South Philadelphia guilty of involuntary manslaughter yesterday, telling her, being a victim of a battered woman syndrome does not give you a license to kill. Sentencing was deferred. Assistant District Attorney David Augenbron said Brodnax of Euclid Avenue near 54th Street apparently had been jealous of Richardson and that when he saw her in a car with another man, he became enraged. After Brodnax bumped his car into the auto containing Richardson on Morris Street near 31st, he dragged her out and threatened her with a knife, Augenbron said. A 17-year-old boy disarmed Brodnax, who fell to the ground while he and Richardson were pushing each other. Then the woman stabbed him three times. Augenbron had sought a voluntary manslaughter conviction because when Richardson began stabbing Brodnax, quote, she wanted to kill this man. Not exactly a saintly exit for a man whose life was spent singing the Lord's praises. This article raises so many questions for me. But what's even more interesting is what it doesn't say. Did you notice how his trans status is mentioned nowhere within the otherwise salacious article? You'd think the reporter wouldn't have wanted to pass up that opportunity for scandal, but there's not even a whisper. It was only during his autopsy that Wilmer was outed as trans, and even then, no one really made a big deal of it. Again, I have so many questions. Even calling him trans is difficult. 
Many have claimed him as an early hero of black lesbianism, while he's now most commonly recognized as trans. But when and how did he transition? Perhaps was he intersex? If you remember, earlier in the episode, we discussed the confusion over his name. Had he taken on the name of a deceased older sibling sometime after 1930? Or had he transitioned as a preteen before 1930? So many questions. Here's another one. Does this story sound all too familiar to you, dear listeners? Perhaps you're thinking of that famous jazz musician who also turned out to be female assigned at birth after his death, Billy Tipton. Despite only releasing two records on tiny labels, Billy Tipton is practically a household name among trans people. But this is not so with the much more prolific Wilmer, who recorded with some of the top gospel quartets from the golden age of gospel music. So why have you heard of Billy, but probably not of Wilmer? Here's how J.D. Doyle astutely puts it, quote, I believe racism plays a hand when you compare the Tipton and Broadnack stories. Tipton's death received a lot of publicity, a big article in People magazine, and a book on him was written, despite him being almost unknown as a musician when alive. Tipton released only two albums on a budget label. Broadnax, in his genre of gospel, performed in some very prominent groups, recorded for decades, and died five years after Tipton. Little publicity, no book. But then, he was black. I want to take a moment to point out that while it may seem surprising that Wilmer worked within the seemingly conservative Christian gospel genre as a trans man in the 1940s through the 1960s, there were probably a number of other queer gospel singers during this same period at various levels of being out, and that cross-gender vocal performance was an important part of the genre's early period. Noah Berlatsky writes, Rather than a genre in which every gender is in place then, gospel was a heavenly stew of cross-gender mimicry and performance. The intensity of the spirit burst the bounds of bodies, making women growl down low and men soar to the stratosphere. And just as it broke out of gender, the spirit went flying from genre to genre. Little Richard arguably invented rock by imitating Marion Williams, who in turn, as above, often adopted men's deep rumble. Contemporary pop started when a man turned a woman's voice from God to sin. Little Richard's violation of gender norms didn't stop at his voice. Part of the theatricality and scandal of his act was always the not very sublimated truth that he was gay. As Heilbutt wrote in The Fan Who Knew Too Much, this was hardly unusual in the gospel community either, where sexualities, like voices, often didn't fit neatly into stereotypical norms. Ruth Davis, Clara Ward, Alex Bradford, 
James Cleveland, and many others were homosexual. The high notes of the men and the rumbling low notes of the women served as a kind of holy camp, the visible, theatrical, open expression of a hidden truth about both gender and God. There are so few details of Wilmer's life available. It seems to me that the study of his life, especially those missing years before his emergence on the gospel scene, are ripe for study. You know, in case any of you academic trans historians listening are looking for a research subject, just saying. But what we do know of Wilmer's life is that he made a mark albeit a humble one, on the golden age of gospel, and lived a black trans life in the time of Jim Crow. He's left behind a wonderful legacy of music that continues to inspire trans and queer people today, and a life story that begs to be further explored. As Noah Berlatsky puts it, even if he isn't famous down here, he's found his place in that circle of singers where no one is unknown singing as a man of God. episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used in putting together this episode. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever else these podcasts get put up. You can rate and review us on iTunes and tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter. OFTV also has a brand new Patreon in case you'd like to support the show by donating. You can find it at patreon.com slash OFTV. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night.